Welcome to the Arlington Baptist Podcast. Again, thank you for joining me as we do these weekly podcasts from our church, trying to get out God's truth, His Word to as many people as we can. And we're privileged that you're with us listening to these podcasts. I hope you have been following our ongoing series. It's almost done. I'm getting close to the very end of this long verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation. Today we'll be looking at the last chapter. We'll jump into chapter 22. So take your Bibles there on your phone, hard copy, and be ready to join me. As I said, we're just about done. Probably have maybe one more podcast after today for uh, to complete this study of the book of Revelation. I don't want to try to fit all of this chapter into one podcast. We usually try to keep it at a certain length each time. So hopefully... Uh, maybe one more. And then we got some new stuff we want to do. I've been in this study for a long time. It's been very rewarding. I hope you have been able to follow all the episodes. You can go back, uh, of course, and listen from the beginning. I hope you're subscribing to our podcast, Arlington Baptist Podcast, or you can get these coming up weekly. I do one a week. Uh, that's all really I have time for, but I enjoy doing them. And we've been doing them for about two years or so. And you could go back to the very beginning uh, and uh, listen to a lot of those. We've done different series. We've had guests on the program, church members, uh, other pastor friends of mine, preachers that I know that have joined me. And so I hope you'll go back and uh, and listen to all those podcasts. It's an amazing technology uh, that we have today so that we can get out God's Word and His truth to people that uh, want it and are open to it. So let's jump into our study, the last chapter of the book of Revelation, chapter 22. Uh, let me do a quick review. We finished chapter 21 last week, uh, and we're in this last uh, section of Revelation that deals with what we call eternity. After the thousand-year reign of Christ that we looked at in chapter 20 and all those events, uh, chapter 21 began with that wonderful and amazing creation of new heavens and new earth. And we've been looking at the uh, this new creation, especially this very mysterious and yet beautiful uh, idea of a new Jerusalem, the new city of Jerusalem that will come down from heaven, uh, evidently sit on the new planet earth. Uh, we saw the dimensions, the gates, the walls, the foundation, uh, all these things in chapter 21, and we ended that chapter with all these very important statements about who will be there. Only the saved uh, shall uh, enter into that city. Uh, the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, verse 24 said. And, and uh, of course, all the wicked shall already have been judged, and no one uh, will remain in eternity uh, that is not a believer, that has not been glorified and given a, an eternal perfect body uh, and soul by Christ, of course, will live forever with him. Uh, we have just a little bit left in the beginning of chapter 22 now to finish our look at this new Jerusalem and this new heavens and new earth. We kind of can incorporate them together. It's a bit mysterious uh, to be sure of how the new Jerusalem will uh, look in comparison to the entire new heavens and new earth. I think they're separate. But anyway, um, we're going to finish the first five verses of chapter 22 and this new heavens and new earth and then really come to what we might call the conclusion 
uh, my study Bible even calls verses 6 through 21, the conclusion really of the book of Revelation, and we can say the conclusion of God's entire revelation. This is so important that all the Bible uh, flows into the book of Revelation and it consummates, it ends with this final book, and we'll get to that. But let me begin now by, as we always try to do, by reading the uh, text aloud, and I'll go back and comment on the verses. So we're in chapter 22. Let me begin in verse 1. And he showed me a pure water, uh, a pure river of water, of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither the light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Now, going back over these verses, and we again see this amazing picture of the throne of God. It's really, I think, intriguing that the throne of God was mentioned uh, quite a bit in the beginning of the book of Revelation, in chapter 4 and 5 specifically, and it's referred to in other places in the Bible, especially in the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, but here we see uh, really a, a, new, a new vision of it, a new view of this throne, because this is going to be a part of the new heavens and new earth, at least seen from that perspective. Uh, we're not claiming or, or, or stating that the throne of God in heaven, the third heavens where God dwells, needed to be changed or renovated or altered. I don't think it did, but we're seeing at least some new detail about it. Notice it says, uh, there's this pure river of water of life. Now, again, there's a lot of symbolism in here, a lot of, of parabolic language. Uh, sometimes it is a bit difficult, for sure, to be to be able to say what is literal and what is symbolic here. Uh, is there a throne? Of course there's a throne. And of God, that means of the Father, the Spirit, we could say, the Lamb is Christ, their, their deity together. So this throne belongs to God and the Lamb. Christ has to be God or he's given a throne without that power. And, of course, he is God, so this is justified. Uh, but this river of water of life, um, it brings in so much of what we've already seen in Scripture. You remember in the beginning of, of the creation story in chapters 1 and 2 where God created the universe in six literal 24-hour days. It talks about there being these rivers that all came together four rivers had flowed into the Garden of Eden or were part of the Garden of Eden. Oh, here there's this pure river. There's never been any pure river since the fall. All the rivers of man have been polluted and corrupted by man's sin like the whole earth has been cursed. But this river that flows out, proceeding out of the throne of God, is, is a picture of Christ. He's the life-giving water. He said of the woman at the well, I'll give you water that you'll never thirst again, the living water. And so this is a picture of it. It's pure uh, river of water. It's like it's, it's emphasizing that in Christ we'll, we'll never need anything again. We'll never thirst. We'll never hunger. We'll be totally satisfied for all eternity. 
Now, in the midst of the street of it, well, what does he mean by the street of it? Well, the street of, the, of, the, of heaven, the picture of the throne, out of the throne comes this street. Uh, we've been seeing all kinds of terminology about the streets of gold and, and the walls and so forth of pure gold and so on. Uh, but here out of the throne of God, this, this river flows and in, there, and in the midst of the river is a street. It says in the midst of the street of it. Uh, so how we can uh, explain that, I'm not sure. I'm not going to try to be dogmatic. Uh, these are, remember, visions by John of things that he could not have fully understood, but he had to put them in language that we could at least gain something from it. And so that's why the language is somewhat uh, very difficult at times. But anyway, out of this street that flows out of this throne, maybe a street meaning the approach to the throne. You can imagine that? A way to approach the very throne of God. Only through Christ is that ever possible. But on either side of the river, this river of life, a literal river it appears, but it definitely has symbolic meaning to picture Christ. But out of, or on either side, I should say, uh, was there the tree of life. Now, that again makes it very difficult to explain. How can one tree be on both sides of the river? I, I don't know. I'm just going to leave the text as it says and let God uh, show us that later. But uh, this tree of life, the tree of life, this is the same tree brought up in the creation in Genesis 1. Remember, there's two trees mentioned in Genesis 1, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree of life uh, is still here. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is no longer there. It's not needed. It was a part of really the, uh, you might call it the, the idea of man uh, showing his free will, man exercising his free will. Uh, God had to place that, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden so Adam and Eve would have a choice. I've dealt with that before. I won't go into it deeply here, but that tree's not shown here, but the tree of life is because it pictures Christ, and that tree gives eternal life. Remember, after man had sinned, very interesting, kind of mysterious, but remember how God said that the man and woman, Adam and Eve, had to be cast out of the garden lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever in a state of death, a state of sin. Uh, that's very interesting to me, very important to this text here. But this tree of life will be a tree that we can feed from forever. Literally, I don't know. We'll leave that to God. It does say it bears 12 manner of fruits. Can you imagine one tree that have 12 kinds of fruits? 12 being the number of human government, the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles. Maybe that has to do with the governance of this eternal state. I don't know. Uh, but it says in this tree, it's a very unique uh, tree. There's no tree ever been like it or will be like it. Uh, it yields its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Again, we can debate whether this is literal or not. I, I'm not going to really give it a lot of time to debate that. It's given in literal language. I'll just read it literally. We could definitely make symbolic application, no doubt. This river is, is the river of life. It's a literal river. The street's literal, let's say. But it does picture Christ and access to God's throne through Christ. This tree pictures eternal life that we have uh, in Christ. We'll never die. Uh, the fruit pictures the sustenance we gain from Christ. The leaves for the healing pictures that we'll never be sick again because in Christ we have healing. 
eternal healing for the soul and now the body. Well, let's move on. And notice now here in a little bit more direct language, and there shall be no more curse. Boy, that little statement to begin verse 3 is just monumental. Imagine this entire world has been under a curse. The universe itself. You know, we could blame man, our first parents, but, all, but ourselves, all of us, for bringing a curse, meaning God's wrath and judgment, his, his dis, displeasure, his anger, his wrath uh, upon the earth, upon all of the universe. Everything wears out and dies. The universal law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, it says everything is going into chaos and, and, and uh, uh, disarray into death. Uh, things don't become more orderly, they become less orderly. And that's the curse. But it's going to be lifted. Isn't this wonderful? When a new heavens and new earth are created, there'll be no more sin, so there'll be no more curse. The curse of God's judgment on the earth is because of sin. When sin is removed, there's no more curse. It's as simple as that. Uh, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. Isn't that great? Uh, just like we saw in chapter 21 where Christ will dwell with us it says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Verse 3 of chapter 21, we saw this is, again, just backing up that very uh, aspect that God will dwell with us. The throne will be right there. We'll have access to it at all times. Now, in the millennial kingdom we studied, apparently Christ reigns from Jerusalem, and men will come to visit him, but they'll not be with him all the time. There'll be mortals that need to be saved. We said all that. But here in this eternal state, no more sin, no more curse. The throne is there with us always. And his servant shall serve him. I like this. And his servant shall serve him. You know, servants are another description of the believer. We're supposed to be servants of the living God. He's our Lord. We serve him willfully and, and graciously and lovingly and, and willingly and all these things. Uh and by the way, this, this validates the idea that we're not going to sit around and, and uh, do nothing for the rest of eternity. We're not going to take a nap on a cloud or any of these other foolish uh, conclusions people draw about heaven and eternity. We're going to serve God. But we'll never get tired. We'll never get sick. We'll love serving Him. You know, when you serve someone you love, doesn't it bring you such a feeling of, of worth, of value, of joy of accomplishment of fulfillment all these things well that's how we'll feel when we serve our lord for all eternity and notice and they shall see his face i preached uh, a while back i don't know how long it's been now i lose track of all all time when you're preaching every week but anyway i preached a message on the six greatest words in scripture and here they are and they shall see his face oh friend that is just beyond our comprehension to fully explain and describe that statement. One of these days, we're going to see Christ. He's the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What that means is we're going to see Christ. I've often thought, I've visualized. I, I hope you don't uh, get offended by that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as we don't take it to a, a, a point of idolatry. But I, I've visualized often what I can picture Christ looks like, what his smile will be like, what his voice will sound like. Um, we'll, we'll have that happen. That's going to be reality. And they shall see his face, the Lamb. Now, God the Father and the Spirit are, are invisible to us. 
They do not have a tangible body, but Christ does, and we'll see him. And he's the fullness of the Godhead bodily, as I mentioned. Paul wrote in Colossians for us. And so, when we see him, we'll see God. He that has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus said. How, show us, how sayest thou, show us the Father, Jesus said to Philip in John 14. So, here we, uh, we have this fulfilled. And I like this, and his name shall be in their foreheads. We've seen a lot about names. His name is so great. God has so many names in Scripture, all describing so many of his amazing characteristics. None can fully describe him. There's no amount of words that can ever fully describe the majesty, the wonder of God. But uh, we also get names from him. And these are like our new names. Remember that hymn we sing, a new name written down in glory? (coughs) Excuse me. But... These names are going to only be known to us in eternity by God. And so, it's so important for us to understand the the beauty of this eternal place. No more curse, we'll see His face. Uh, The fact that we have names in our foreheads refers to the idea, I think it definitely points to the fact God knows our name and call us by name. Isn't that going to be amazing? Can you imagine the Lord calling your name and you hearing your name? Wow, my name? This is fantastic. Uh, now notice verse 5, and there shall be no night there. Well, we have pretty much already saw that earlier in verse, um, verse 23 of chapter 21. It said, and the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. Well, of course, that means that if you don't have any need of sun or moon, there's no night, of course. Uh, there's no nighttime. All is day. And he re- First to the same idea, they sh- and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. This is the beauty of this kingdom, the beauty of this eternal state. Uh, back in John's day, now the only light you can have in uh, after dark was by candlelight. Now, we, of course, are so advanced, that seems so foreign and backward to us, but that's how John wrote it, because that's the only light that man could have back then, is, is candlelight. But he says he don't need any candle then. And we won't need the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light. Well, he is the light. And we get light from him. He lighteth every man that cometh into the world, John 1, 9 says. And here he shall be the light of all eternity. For all eternity he will light up everything. He is the very essence of illumination. He lights everything physically, spiritually, Uh, psychologically, emotionally, in every way, he's the light. Light is such a beautiful thing. Without light, we couldn't live. We couldn't exist without light. Uh, And they shall reign forever and ever. Well, here we see a a, a kind of a twist on an earlier theme uh, where in chapter 20 it said that the thrones of those who rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years, is this the same group? Yes, it includes that group, surely. Now it seems to indicate all. Oh, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not going to try to be dogmatic. Uh, and who's the they? And they shall reign forever and ever. Well, we already know that the thrones of those who reigned with him in chapter 20 were said to reign forever and ever. Uh, remember, it used the phrase. Um, let me go back to there and, and see that. Uh, there it is. Well, actually, no, no. Let me correct myself here. This is very telling. Uh, 
in that chapter, in chapter 20, the first few verses, it talked about them reigning for a thousand years, but now it talks about whoever they would refer to as reigning forever and ever. Well, uh, when you reign, by by extension of the word and the concept, it means there must be someone you're reigning over. There must be someone that you're an authority over. Uh, So I'm not really sure how we can fit that into an eternal scenario. I'll leave that to God. Uh, reigning over what? I don't know, but I, I would have to stick with my original thought that the, those who ruled and reigned for a thousand years, maybe the same people that rule and reign here. Now there's not going to be any sin, but there still has to be order. God always has order. You know that? Even in the garden. Remember how amazing that was when God uh, said to, to Adam that he was to dress and keep the garden. There was no sin. It wasn't like there were thorns and thistles and death and, and misery and uh, sickness and all kinds of things. And, and, you know, things needed to be taken care of in that sense. But there was still work to be done. God's orderly. He wants us to be busy. And evidently there'll be work to be done. Remember, we serve him. His servant shall serve him. So maybe that connects with the ruling and reigning forever, whoever this group is. I'll leave that to God. I'm not going to be dogmatic and say I know exactly who this is. There was a group that was ruling for a thousand years earlier. I think they're a specific group, and it can't be everybody uh, during that millennial kingdom. Or who, they, who would they rule and reign over for a thousand years? Well, maybe the same idea can be incorporated here. Anyway, let's go on. Now, this ends really the section on eternity. And now we go to what we call the conclusion. In these last uh, 15 verses or so, we're going to see the conclusion of this book and tie together everything that not only Revelation has been about, this book, but all the Bible. There's some things that will be said to kind of tie in all the scripture here. Well, let me begin in verse 6 uh, to this conclude, conclusion and read 6 and 7. And he said unto me, and that would again be the uh, angel that has been showing John all these things. We saw the angel back from verse 9 of chapter 21, uh, and this must be the same one. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Now, back to this angel who speaks these things to John. And uh, he says to John, which is just a great beginning to this conclusion section, these sayings are faithful and true. We need to keep that in mind. Everything God says is faithful and true. He cannot lie. Titus 1, 2 tells us. And God cannot lie. He'd cease to be God. If God could even sin, he would cease to be God. He cannot sin. He's totally above and beyond sin. He repudiates it with his very nature. Everything about sin is against God, and he's against it. And so he's faithful and true. You could believe him. I love that. You could believe God. That's really the heart of our faith. You know, if you couldn't believe God's word, friend, you'd have no basis for your faith. We can't see God. We, aren't, we weren't there when Jesus came on earth and walked among men. What we have from God is his divine autobiography, his love letter called the Bible. And that is faithful and true. You can believe it. I love this, he says, and it kind of makes us think of chapter 1, verse 1, the very beginning of the book. The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. That was very much like how the book began. 
So he's kind of bringing this all like a sandwich together, kind of climaxing the whole book of Revelation and the word of God itself. Uh, God is the God of the holy prophets. Isn't that wonderful? That would refer to the Old Testament, but I think since we're climaxing the entire scripture, it's all those who spoke and wrote for God. You know, not all the prophets in the Old Testament were writing prophets. Elijah, Elisha, uh, some others we would think of never actually wrote scripture, though they spoke for God. So maybe these holy prophets would incorporate anyone who has spoken for God as a prophet was to do. He was to represent God to the people. Uh, and this would refer to anybody who's spoken his word. Uh, preachers, pastors, teachers, evangelists, missionaries, every Christian really in some way. Uh, could be incorporated into a holy prophet. If you've shared God's word, uh, in a way, you're, you're like the holy prophets. And it says the angel was sent, and it says his angel. It, well, there's been a lot of angels in this book, but this is the main angel that was first referred to, we think, in the beginning of the book of Revelation. He was like the head angel to show his servants. That's all of us. That's every Christian. Remember, his servant shall serve him, verse 3 said. Now, he sums it up by saying this whole book was written to show his servants. Remember, that's a description of a Christian. Are you serving the Lord? If you're not serving him, and how do we serve him? Well, we serve him personally in our daily life, but we serve him collectively through his church. I, again, remind you that if you're not serving the Lord through his church, um, you're not showing yourself a Christian. You're not giving the evidence of your salvation. You're not uh, portraying what a Christian should be doing. We're to be serving the Lord through his church as well. So he shows unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. I dealt with that in verse 1 of the book. I won't go into long detail, but it does seem rather strange to us to hear, it, hear him say shortly. It's already been 2,000 years now nearly since John wrote this, uh, and he still hasn't come back. But to God, it's still shortly. God doesn't measure time the way we do. Now, in verse 7, we have the first of three times where Jesus says this, I come quickly. This time he says, behold, I come quickly. He'll say that again in verse 12, and then finally in verse 20, surely I come quickly. Now, again, this, this is not uh, in the sense he comes quickly compared to when this was given. I think it has more to do with when he comes how he, how he will come. It will be quick. In the twinkling of an eye, the rapture happens. And really, once these events unfold, they'll happen quickly. I mean, compared to the rest of eternity and even uh, the past history of man, once Christ comes, it will be quickly. And he's basically stating again the urgency of being ready. That's why these three statements are given in this last chapter. I come quickly, Jesus says. Three times. Why does he say it three times? For urgency. You better be ready. As we get to the end of this book, and Lord willing, we'll end it next week for sure on the final podcast on this series. I'm going to try to tie that all in and urge you, friend, if you're not saved, if you've been listening to any or all of these podcasts on the, the book of Revelation, uh, the, the whole purpose is to bring you to Christ, to hope you'll see your need of Christ before it's too late. That's why Jesus is saying, I'm coming quickly. You better be ready. Now, blessed is he. He said the same thing in chapter 1, verse 3. The blessing of reading this book and keeping it. Remember, in chapter 1, it was to read and keep. And now, since you've already read the book, you're at the end. He doesn't even mention the re-reading part. He, he insinuates you've already read it. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. See, God is, is 
more concerned about what we do with his word than just if we read his word or hear his word. Remember in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the great final climax where Jesus talks about two men who build their house, either one on the rock or one on the sand. If you follow that, you'll see that both heard his word, but only one did his word. And that was the man described as building his house on a rock that when the storms of life and troubles of this world come, he was not destroyed because his house was founded on a rock. That's obedience. And that's that's a wonderful truth. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Now, the word prophecy there uh, is not being uh, exclusive to just things that are said about the future. If we think about the word prophecy, we usually think about future events. It's really more describing the entire contents, not only of Revelation, yes, of course, of this book, but I think of the entire Bible. And I'm going to stress that as I finish the discussion of this book next week, that the things John concludes with here really cannot be limited just to the book of Revelation, This these 22 chapters. It has to be referring to all the Bible because it's only right that would. This is like the conclusion of all of Scripture, okay? So we're blessed by keeping really all the Word of God. And of course, in a direct sense, in a specific sense, we're blessed by knowing what this book of Revelation has taught us, that will be ready to meet Christ when he comes, first at the rapture for all of his people. That's when you ought to be ready, right now. But there'll be some who will go into that, that tribulation period will need to be saved then, and even some that will need to be saved during the millennial kingdom. Well, let me go on, at least cover a little bit more. Let's look at verse 8 and 9. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I heard and seen, or I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren the prophets and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. Now this is really uh, an amazing little passage here to include because you and I can really identify with John. I, I can't fault him here for what he did. He's going to really be rebuked by this uh, this angel or this fellow servant, uh, let's just put it that way, and and because John is so overtaken, he's just so mesmerized by all that he's seen and heard. He says, and when I had heard and seen, well, you might say he's, he could be referring to all that he's heard and seen, <laughs> unlike no one else has ever heard and seen all that John did. What was his reaction to this angel? Well, this angel uh, who was the main angel that gave him this prophecy, he is just overtaken by the amazement he has for all the things he's seen. So he does what any of us would do. He falls down at his feet and, and as if he, he's giving credit or in some way worship to this angel because he has to be for the rebuke says he's only to worship God. But anyway, um, I don't want to fault John. It says he fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. It's like he's thanking him, he's recognizing what he's done and showing him all these things. But this, this answer, this rebuke of this angel is so telling. See thou do it not. In other words, don't worship me, get up. He says, for I'm, I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Now, I don't want to make too much out of this, uh, the description this angel gives of himself. If it's really an angel, we know angels are different than men. They, they exist on a different plane, a different 
a different level of existence, you might say, a different rank of, of creation. And we talked about angelology, and there's a lot of angels brought up in, in Revelation. So uh, I don't think that this angel is trying to compare himself to being a, an actual human being uh, that lived on earth, uh, because he, he said, it says he was the, an angel, the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. I think he's just trying to compare himself as a servant, a fellow servant and of thy brethren, not that he's one of them in the same exact way, uh, but he's like them in the sense that he serves God, he keeps the sayings of this book, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. See, so this angel is, is teaching the lesson that's taught all through Scripture. There's only one God, and he alone deserves our worship. The first two commandments, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. This has always been uh, the key to all approach to God, that he is unique, he is the one and only true and living God, and all other worship is idolatry. And so this rebuke is, is warranted. Now, before we move on, I've got to mention how that back in the story of Acts 10, you're familiar with it perhaps, where uh, Peter is going to give uh, the message of the gospel to the first Gentiles in the in the book of Acts in the in the early New Testament church age in the church period, and when he uh, finally goes to the house of Cornelius there in Caesarea, um, you remember what happened? As soon as Cornelius saw Peter, and he was he was expecting, he was anticipating Peter coming. God had told him in a dream that this man was going to come and give him the truth and fully explain salvation to him. And he's going to be saved and, and his household too. It's a great chapter. We're studying it in in one in our Zoom study that we do with our men. But anyway, um, when he falls at Peter's feet, remember what Peter said? He rebuked him the same way. He said, Get up, I myself also am a man. Uh, this is very important to recognize. And, and I, I uh, reminded our men when we just studied that passage not long ago that uh, Peter, who's supposedly the first pope, he was not a pope. He's not the first pope. He's never called the pope. There is no such thing as popes in the Bible. And I think the whole succession of popes from Peter is nothing but a, a fanciful joke anyway. Anyone who knows the history as I've referred to it before, of these so-called popes down to Francis today, uh, I think it's an abomination to even teach that. But if he was a pope, like many of the modern popes, um, he, would have, he would have readily accepted Cornelius' worship at his feet, but he didn't. And I think these modern popes like Francis and then Benedict and, and back to uh, all the others before them uh, should be rebuked for their idolatry, allowing people to grovel up and kiss their feet and kiss their ring and treat them as if they're God. Uh, this angel said, don't worship me, you only worship God. And that's what Peter said to Cornelius, and that's what we ought to always remember. God alone deserves our worship. Well, it's a good time to stop. We'll pick up and try to, Lord willing, finish the last 11 verses or so of this chapter, beginning in verse 10 next time. Thank you for listening, and remember our motto, conviction for truth, compassion for people.